Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 82 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this instalment is, funnily enough, all the things that actually matter about golf. Course conditioning, the latest in driver and wedge technology, and having food and drinks delivered by drone are just some of the topics you'll hear nothing about today as we delve into a fascinating story that appeared a couple of weeks ago on the Golf Club Atlas website. GCA founder Rand Morissette penned the piece entitled Custodians of the Game, in which he outlined not the best architecture or most enduring design ideas, but all the things that make golf special and exhilarating. And he nominated 147 clubs and courses from around the world that fit that bill. There is much to unpack from the piece, and joining me to help do just that is columnist, commentator, course architect, and professional golfer, not necessarily in that order, Mike Clayton. Clayton, looking forward to the discussion. I know that you enjoyed Rand's piece and found plenty in there worthy of exploring further. Yeah, it was good. Like all lists, it was aroused a bit of controversy, but that's good. There was lots of uh, interesting discussion to be had in, in the piece before the list, but the words that Rand wrote, there are a couple of things that are really interesting in there, so yeah. it'll be good to discuss them. I agree with you more. And as Alistair himself said, Clates, all talk is to the good of the game, so uh, a bit of controversy doesn't help. It uh, doesn't hurt. Uh, now to the man himself. This is Rand's second appearance on State of the Game, and just like his first, I reckon this one's going to be entertaining and educational. Rand's the founder of Golf Club Atlas and a certifiable golf nut, proven by the fact that he not only comes to us from North Carolina, where he's sitting and waiting for Hurricane Florence to arrive, but he just told us that as soon as we finish here, he's off to play golf in what he describes as a four-club wind with Chris Buey. Rand, that is a serious commitment, my friend. A very special thanks for taking the time under the circumstances. Well, we all can't be fortunate enough to live where wind is integral to the game, and so the few days we get it here, we need to take advantage <laughs> of it. My goodness. Well, best of luck. Uh, you're not in actual danger there, I'm hoping, in, in North Carolina. I think you're, you're away from the, the what the worst of the damage is going to be, I think, at Pinehurst, aren't you? Yeah, I, we're, we're, we're fingers, uh, fingers, fingers crossed. It crossed. comes ashore 120 miles from us. Yep. All right, let's go to the list. 147 custodians of the game. As Clayton said there, the list is interesting, but I tend to agree with him. I think the story that precedes it uh, was maybe almost more interesting in lots of ways, or certainly provides uh, for an awful lot of discussion. Before we come to all of that, I want to read out a little list that you put near the end of the story about what you were looking for and what you were sort of used as your criteria for these uh, these clubs and courses. A course that provides engaging puzzles to solve, beats one which does not. I think we all agree with that. Course where the ball's encouraged to run beats one where it is not. I think we all agree with that. A course where you can carry your bag at any time beats one where you cannot. Uh, cannot. I think everybody should agree with that. Course where you can play quickly while walking beats one where you can't. A course that you can enjoy at all ages beats one where you can't. Course with understated maintenance practices beats ones with beats one with conspicuous green keeping. And I want to explore that one further. A club that emphasizes the simple game of golf beats one which pursues the trapping of status. I think those two kind of go together in a way, don't they? And, of course, that you want to play again and again beats one you only wish to play annually. How did you come up with that little list, Ran, of those sort of criteria? Well, it was meant to summarize the thoughts from up above and to give some framework for the list that followed. And I very much agree with y'all's point that it's the preamble that matters the most, even though I think if I had just written the preamble and there was no list to follow, that the take up on it worldwide would have been uh, less. I don't know why there's a fascination with lists, um, but but there is one and it serves as a talking uh, point. But um, very much agree with y'all's take that it's the preamble and, and those 
uh, eight bullet points were meant to summarize what went before that. Mm. They all sound so simple, don't they? And they sound like, you know, the, the way golf should be. So much of all of those eight points have been lost at so many modern golf facilities, haven't they? And even in just the way we view the game and talk about the game, I noticed they, just the headlines and the stories about the game. I mentioned it in the intro there. People getting food delivered by drone is a golf story these days. What's going on with that, Rand? Why are we interested in that? Well, uh, let me be clear, though. Uh, As you all know, I lived in Australia for six or seven uh, years, and you all are in one of the two or three best golfing nations in the world. And a lot of the things that you just read would be highly controversial here in the United States, which has really lost the plot. So, you know, you read that out loud. uh, The warmest emails and congratulatory notes that I've received came from Australia, Canada, England, and Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, and no surprise, I mean, that's kind of the heartbeat of the game. Um, so, it, you know, more uh, muted um, here in the United States. It's funny, isn't it, Clates? Have you got any, you've played around the world, Clates, probably less so in America, I guess, but certainly professionally all over Europe and here in Australia. Have you got any thoughts on what Rand's talking about there and how the culture, and it certainly does seem to those of us from outside the US, that the culture of golf in America is so incredibly different to other parts of the world? Well, the model's so different. It seems the, the, the model of clubs with few members charging fees that are unimaginable amounts to Australians. I mean, if, if you were charging $100,000 plus and to join and um, fifteen dollars or $20,000 a year, all Melbourne would have two or 300 members. It, it would survive. But our model is 10000 or 12000 to join and three or four, five, six thousand 6000 a year. And so we scale down our costs to, to, to suit that model. And it leads to, uh, I don't think we have that demand for I'm paying this amount of money so I want perfect bunkers and perfect conditions and all the things that Rand's railing against but if you're paying what I think are extortionate amounts of money to join a golf club then members are going to want to demand that sort of stuff but Mm. of course the rest of the world can't afford that so golf is like it is because the rest because we can't afford that that model it wouldn't work anywhere but America Mm. so that's probably why the, the the, the games in the state it is in America. And of course, sorry, Rand. So, which is a massive generalization because as the list shows, there are so many great places to play golf in America. I mean, it's an incredible country to play golf. It's just that the mass of the stuff isn't um, the sort of golf that the rest of the world enjoys. Mm. This bleeds into some other issues, doesn't it, Rand? Because we have generations of golfers who've grown up with golf looking and being a certain way, and particularly in America, and more and more so here in Australia. So I think it's fair to say, Clates, that not so much the financial membership model we've started to follow, but the notion of cart golf and resort golf and greenkeeping, and and as you put it there, you know, where the greenkeeping is emphasised, as you put in that list, those things have started to take precedence at a lot of public tracks, haven't they, Clates? And it leads to a generation of players who've never been exposed to something else and therefore can't appreciate it, Rand. Do you get that sense that all of those things you're talking about there, you can't appreciate till you experience them? You certainly have to have a framework um, to relate things to. Um, I, I was very proud and fortunate to be a member at Newcastle Golf Club up in Stockton, New South Wales for five or six years. 
And that's an example of a course laid over ideal land for golf, rolling sand dunes. And you don't have to go too far away where you see, what's it called? Is it New Horizon or Horizon? H- Horizons, uh, golf. Yeah. Horizons, yeah. yeah. So, so that was built through um, wetlands. It's cart golf. It takes forever to play on a crowded weekend. And, you know, one of the tipping points is that uh, so many modern courses are built on land ill-suited for the game. And I don't care what man does to kind of doll it up. It's still a, a on on poor um, property. Generally, for sure, uh, bad uh, soil. Um, and so, you know, a course like Newcastle has a built-in advantage. It's on um, great land, and so they don't have to, um, you know, do unnatural acts. And so you feel like you're a part of the environment, and the course reflects that. And if you read those eight bullet points that you read right at the start, if you said that to any member at New South Wales, uh, it to uh, Newcastle, they'd go, well, of course, that's mm. right. Mm. Uh, but I'm just telling you, in North America, there are a lot of people who'd look at you like you have um, three eyes. Mm. I mean, it, it really is um, strange, especially the notion of being able just to, to carry your, your golf bag or take a trolley. I mean, that, that is a real uphill battle that a lot of the finest courses um, around uh, New York City, for instance. Like, I'm a huge fan of what Gil did at Ridgewood, and I love the diversity of the holes. And you all might have caught some of that on um, TV. It was part of the FedEx thing. It's a wonderful course, but you have to take a caddy up until 3 p.m., and that was kind of a deal killer um, for what I was compiling. It's Sorry, Clyde's. So, uh, but uh, but I think Rod, you make the point that um, the problem with the caddy deal over there, well, is that you're paying a hundred dollars plus for for a professional caddy or or someone who's doing it for a living, as opposed to trying to find a thirteen-year-old Mike Clayton who's happy to do it for a dollar. That that that's exactly right. I, some of my best memories with Dad, I used to caddy for him the, when he played with Vinnie Giles, the great amateur from Virginia. And I, and I can remember some of the shots that Vinny hit, and I was so proud of my father. And, you know, I mean, it just – we all have um, great um, caddy stories. And when I go up to Cabot, I always get a youngster um, up there, and it just uh, – there's some priceless moments from that. So, But you're paying 40 or $50, um, and, and it's not just another layer of expense that's crippling the game and diluting the enjoyment. Mm. There's there's a uh, this word has stuck with me. Shack, Jeff Shackleford mentioned this on three episodes ago on State of the Game. This word authentic. The hundred and twenty dollar professional caddy feels somewhat contrived, doesn't it, Ran? The young kid who's getting subsidised membership and twenty or thirty bucks or whatever it might be for the day to carry your bag is authentic. Carry your bag is authentic. I really agree with that. I mean, you know, God knows how many times you have a caddy in at St. Andrews who starts off with talking about himself for the first two holes. And, and you know, I didn't go to St. Andrews to, to hear his life story. <laughs> True. Well, although I had a caddy at St. Andrews well, the two times we played there, and I thought it was fair. It really did sort of add to the experience. We've spoken about that endlessly, Clates. Apart from anything else, 
that pathway to the game having been closed, Clates, has been, you know, everyone bangs on about grow the game. There's a simple way to bring back the notion of grow the game, isn't it? Well, it's not quite so simple, obviously, in this day and age, or we would have probably done it by now. But the loss of the the club member junior caddy uh, has really been to the detriment of the game, I think, Clates. Yeah, we've said it before. It just amazes me that, that, that there aren't a bunch of 12, 13, 14-year-old kids out there who want to go to the golf club to drag an old man's bag around, which is... Which sounds like, why would a 13 or 14-year-old kid want to do that rather than sit on his phone or in front of a computer screen or whatever, or play with his mates or whatever? But, you know, it was something that, I mean, I loved it. I, I couldn't get enough caddy. As a 12 or 13-year-old, it was I did 36 holes a day on Saturday and loved it. And it was what brought me into the game. And you just, you know, I can't imagine there's not one kid in Australia who wants to turn up at Metropolitan where I play on Saturdays and make... 30 or 40 bucks for 36 holes, but apparently that's the case. So it's a pity, but it was a way in for the game for so many of the Bob Shearer and Stuart Ginn and Jeff Ogilvie and so, so many of Australia's best players, all, they all started off cutting. Yeah, indeed. Not to flog this, this is the last thing I want to say, but I think the problem is probably less with the kids, Clades, if you offered it to them as an option. I mean, some of them would no doubt take it up. I think you probably run into problems these days of insurance for the club, OHS issues. Parents who think that their kids are being exploited because they're not getting paid enough to do whatever the work is. There'd be rules and regulations about how heavy a golf bag can be if a kid of a certain age or weight is going to... So there's a whole lot of other stuff that's happened since you caddied at the age of 13, which would make it, sadly, too difficult. But the simple solution to me seems if you had the option for the same price of a golf cart or a caddy, that would be a way... I think that would encourage a lot more people to take... Caddies, if that were possible. Yeah. So um, that would be uh, wonderful. Let's, let's not bog down on that because there's so much other good stuff in this rant. First things first about the list, I just wanted to note, lots and lots of what are considered and accepted as the world's great golf courses are left off because they don't fit the criteria. So this isn't a list of criteria that, you know, a great course has to tick all these boxes, is it, Rand? This is a different list you've compiled. That, that, that's exactly right. And since I first published it, uh, I've had to uh, make one change, and that was uh, Garden City Golf Club, which is a wonderful Emmett Travis design on Long Island, uh, one of my absolute favorites. It's on Hempstead Plain, but they have a, a rule, and I learned this after the fact, um, th- that you have to take a caddy until 5 p.m., and here, literally, it's on a plane. It's, you know, think of Walton Heath. I mean, it's not an arduous walk. It's one of the Graham's game's great walks, in fact. And so the thought that um, you'd have to shell out um, for that, I I ended up replacing it um, with Austin uh, Golf Club. Um, And a a friend of mine shared with me a quote from Ben Crenshaw um, that I thought was really um, special and it captured kind of the spirit of the list. And it was, it's amazing how many things a golf course can do without. And it's, it's so um, true. Uh, and, and it gets back to what Jeff Shackler was talking about, an authentic experience. Um, and, you, you know, with America having been in this bull market for 10 years and with these clubs so flush, you know, the great um, enemy to natural golf is money. Mm. And that is the battle that we um, have to fight here. And I think a lot of courses uh, have gone, you know, 
far too much to make their courses look starched and pressed and uniform and perfect and uniformly green and and it you know, it you, you you don't you don't really feel connected uh, with nature when you play it um, some of these these courses so um, it, it's you know I think I wrote in the piece it's a little bit like golf architects when they first had the ability to to move uh, large amounts of dirt they had to figure out when to use a bulldozer and when not to mm-hmm. and I think um, clubs are ha- need to struggle um, and find a better uh, way to present their course um, again without having it be too starched and pressed. Mm. What do you think about that, Clates? There's a t- t- golf on TV plays a role in that, doesn't it? This this belief that pristine and green and perfectly for even when they go to fantastic TPC Boston the other week, it's fantastic. But to see the way it was presented, it's also neat and tidy and cooking just presents a form of the game that's unrealistic for most but it's actually less interesting isn't it uh, in that way well i was going to ask Rand how much of an influence augusta plays on all this because it's the you know whilst it has no influence over and, and one of the things Rand brings up one of the, the great things about augusta are the mowing lines where the ball's allowed to run into the bunkers and you know it doesn't have the, the crazy mowing lines of beth page black i think Rand points out but how much, Rand, do you think Augusta is an influence on what happens in America in terms of that perfect, pristine conditioning? I, you know, it, it really kicks off the golf season for at least half the country. And so that's their idea of ideal um, golf. And and the tragedy is that while the Oakmonts and National Golf Links of America were cutting down trees and reclaiming fairway width, Augusta went the other way. Now, they've always been after um, fast and firm, and they have one of the few budgets that allows fast and firm and green. Um, but again, I mean, you know, you're watching that event for four days during the year, and, you know, the course is shut for the next four or five months, and it just presents um, such a – and people are enthralled – uh, buy it. I, I happen to not be one of them. Before I came up with the caddy criteria, Augusta was on the list somewhere around 110, and I loved what I wrote about it. I said, despite being poorly presented and over-treed, um, you can't hide how great the greens are um, and how much fun it is to play from the white tees. Um, but once the, the caddy... Um, element came in then that that got um scrubbed poorly presented Rand. my goodness that, that wouldn't go down I well mean, in the offices at augusta would it hey? i agree with you and i've written about this before it's a real conundrum augusta so much about it is right and so much about it is wrong uh, that's the problem. I think it was Jeff Ogilvy, didn't he say to us once, Clates, that, that you know Augusta gets it right every year in terms of, and, and tournament directors all year talk about how exciting and everything Augusta is and they do everything in their power to make their own golf course the complete opposite <laughs> because they get so much yeah. right but that, that people take away the wrong things, which is the greenness as opposed to the, the width and the angles and the interest of the golf course. Yeah. Um, I, I think he also said at one point, the setup at Augusta is perfect for every course on the tour, except Augusta. Except Augusta, <laughs> that's right. It's uh, it, it is a. Well, I, I, 
Yeah. I just find it funny how many people I, I'd meet at Royal Melbourne are like, oh, I hope to go to Augusta someday. And I'm <laughs> yeah, like, that's yeah. a long way to go for worse golf. Yeah, that, well, yeah, uh, yeah. that's amazing, isn't it? Do you reckon that's permeating, Red? Do you feel a shift amongst golfers? Certainly one thing social media has done that's positive is bring together all of us golf course nuts that that think the golf course is the most important thing about the game, not the score and not how far you hit it and not whether you can spin this wedge this much. For those of us who think all those are the the accessories of the game and not that interesting, it's, it's given us a place to play, do you, to come together and talk. Do you feel a shift amongst golfers, Ran, about their interest in? Has Golf Club Atlas reflected a notion that there's more interest in what's genuinely important about the game rather than the over-accessorisation at every stage of the game? Well, Rod, I think you just uh, nailed it. I mean, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, all you had is Golf Digest and Golf Magazine, and there was no conversation other than what you might have with your mates at your club. I mean, there was literally no way for people to get together. Um, And as far as I know, the first kind of uh, society to help get people together to discuss architecture was the Donald Ross Society, founded either in the late uh, 1980s or early 1990s. Um, And then, obviously, social media and and Golf Club Atlas. I mean, the response from this piece has just been unbelievable. I, I got an email this morning from Donald Steele who said, well done, those are my exact sentiments. You know, congratulations, a past uh, RNA captain um, uh, responded two weeks ago saying it, it so well sums up the uh, spirit of the game. Uh, old Tom Morris would be very proud of you. Um, so it, it's, it, it, you know, but you have to have a platform that can reach people around the world. And here we are, I'm in Pinehurst and you all in Australia. And uh, Mike's down at one of my very favorite courses, St. Andrews Beach. And we can have this this conversation. So for sure, you know, you can bypass um, Augusta National and the Masters. You can bypass another flawed U.S. Open setup. You can bypass uh, Golf Digest and what I call their resistance to fun um, <laughs> metric. Um, and we can just get on with it. Yeah. And it's 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 refreshing. Before I turn Clates loose, and uh, I know he read the piece probably a couple of times knowing Clates, and we'll no doubt have some, very, uh, some really excellent questions and talking ones. But before we come to that, I guess the only criticism I could make in this sense, Ran, of the entire list is that many of the venues that are on it are in fact private, which is probably one of the things we don't like so much about the game, the notion of it being closed off and exclusive. We'd, we'd all probably rather see it be a much more inclusive sort of game. What do you say to that is – to that, that criticism perhaps of the list at a place like Royal Melbourne is a private golf club, the West Coast. Uh, Bamboogle Dunes, obviously not. National Golf Links of America is a private. I can't just turn up there and play and experience it as a golfer, even for a price. What do you say to that as a notion of these being the places that are the custodians of the game? Well, the, the, the purpose of the list was to try and celebrate the game of golf. I remember, I, I don't know, it was sometime in the 90s, I canceled my Golf Digest subscription. They'd come out with their top uh, U.S. Top 100, and I realized that I didn't have any interest to play like 36 or 37 of the courses on their U.S. Top 100 list. You know, they're just hard, long, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it, it is not um, my um, doing or fault that the great architecture happens to be at private clubs. And in the case of all of them in the United Kingdom, 
you know, you have access to them. Many, many Americans um, have played uh, Royal Melbourne. I, I think really to your point, uh, you know, the, the biggest difficulty would simply be the American um, courses out of all of these. And, you know, less than half of the courses on here are, are from um, America and plenty like Mid Pines and Wicopa and, uh, you know, um, you know, are, are open um, to the public. But I mean, the purpose of the list was to celebrate how fun the game can be, how many diverse playing fields there are. And it was supposed to be a celebration of golf. And if I made it about golf courses that we could all get on or that all cost less than $50, you know, it would be a uh, wildly different list. And, it w- you know, some of the great times I've had, you know, simply w- wouldn't have, have been reflected in that and some of the joy would have immediately gone gone out of the uh list sure it's hard to imagine a list with that criteria leaving off royal melbourne for example as you say here's a question for you ran would you have got to 147 if you'd used that criteria of it having to be public access and perhaps set a dollar amount as a maximum well i mean to see living in america if you write a respectful letter you can get on every golf course in the United Kingdom, and I that I can promise you, there are 147 golf courses that mm-hmm. I would love to play in the United Kingdom. So just and and you know personally, I think over time this list may become less U.S. centric and more rest of the world because because the U.S. is again going in a in an unappealing direction where they make the game so much more cumbersome than. Uh, other places around the world. And at this point in, in my life and having railed against it since starting golf club Atlas in 1999, you know, I'm not going to bother um, going to these places. I want to go where there's a kindred spirit um, is kind of, I've laid out here. I mean, that's where I'm going to have the most fun and, and have the most laughs. So good. To, good. And right, so right. Yeah. That, that reminds me of, Lloyd Cole, whose music we play at the end, Lloyd was, he said to me a few years ago, he said, I'm just tired of these top-tier golf courses. He said, I'm just all about second-tier golf now, which is exactly what Rand's talking about. Mm. I mean, and, and, and second-tier in the right sense. I mean, obviously, Royal Melbourne's not a second-tier golf course, but places like, I mean, Port Ferry down here in Australia, Rand, where you must come and visit next time you're down here. But, I mean, not to see, he would probably call not to second-tier golf course, but it's an amazing place to play golf and you know, all, all those, there's so much great golf that's not, you know, first tier golf, which is Augusta and, you know, the, the all that, all that well, crazy I, stuff. You know, I, 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 um, I bounced some ideas off of a friend in Melbourne in compiling this. And, and one of the courses that he suggested that fit the spirit of this list very well, Mike, was your course an hour or two. What north and east of Melbourne is it Royal Healy? Hillsville. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And and so that was the you know and and Rod, I, I hope you will allow me at the end. I would love to know. Ask each of you, you know, for five or six um, courses that uh, that using my criteria you would have um, had on here. And, and you know, one of my great um, gaps, even though I, I was back in Melbourne a couple of years ago, you know, I, I haven't seen Kingston Heath for um, 20 years. Mike, I haven't seen Victoria for 20 years. 
Um, I don't think you were working on it when I last saw it, which is maybe in 97 or something. So, you know, there are obviously some um, places that I've got to, um, you know, um, get to um, and get back to, I should say. Well, you can get um, 10 or 12 off Clates at the end. I'm not going to contribute five or six, but he'll have 10 or 12. No problem. I'm sure that he can uh, add to the list. Sorry, Clates, you're about to say something. And then I want you to come uh, to some of the points you mentioned to me that you liked about this piece and wanted to talk to Ran about. uh, Well, here's, well, yeah, it's 5,000 metres long, par six. It's really a par 66. There are two par fives that are 460 yards long, but it's a fun, interesting course. Um, Port Ferry is a great little club, sort of two or three hours from Melbourne. $600 $600 a year to be a member on the sea. Great fun. Not in very good condition, but but in saying that, it's actually in perfect condition. Um, but, and, and talking about Royal Melbourne, is that Royal Melbourne, compared with uh, Augusta, for example, is a public course. Anyone can really play at Royal mm, Melbourne. That's true. Yeah, and, and you can certainly walk. I mean, if you live in Melbourne and you drive your car up to Royal Melbourne at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and get out of your car and walk onto the golf course, no one's going to throw you off, probably. I mean, there aren't many people who are game enough to do that, but you could do that. You know, there's no one at the gate stopping you to come in, and you know, if you jumped out of your car and walked down the practice fairway and walked out onto the 18th fairway and down the 17th, then no one would throw you off. Mm. You know, so it's very accessible in that sense for, for such an amazing place. Yeah. But um, should we go and to you the, know, the... The golf world's very inclusive. I mean, you know, somehow... You know, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, but I have played all these courses through the kindness of um, people. Mm-hmm. And if if you, if you express a genuine interest and passion in golf architecture, I, so many doors open um, to you. Um, what I don't like are people who think they're entitled to go to Pine Valley or to National Golf Links just because they play golf. I, I don't agree with that. In the least, I mean, freedom of association is 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 very important. So, so, but if you're kind and respectful, you know, good things happen to you. Has been my experience. Yeah, I, I remember around. I drove up to the gates at Swinley Forest uh, a few years ago, and I knocked on the secretary's door, and a kindly old woman opened it, and I said, "Yeah, I'm from Australia. Would it be a problem if I walked the golf course?" And she said, "Why would that be a problem?" <laughs> And, and, there, and, and, and there's a place with, with, with a fearsome reputation as, as having locked gates. And why would that be a problem? She said, I'll, I'll let them know you're out there so they don't annoy you. And it was just, yeah, and you know, walk around Swinley Forest. It was just incredible. And it's, Surprised you didn't hey, offer that, you a dog to take with you, Clates. That would have, that would have, yeah, here, take Monty. He loves a walk around the yeah. golf course. That would have been, that would have yeah. kept it off nicely. Ran. Well, let, one of my hesitations in going the caddy route is I had to insert myself into and become familiar with certain and really just in the United States um, club um, policies regarding caddies. And so I emailed different friends who helped uh, find out the answers. And I, I, you know, one of the best emails I got back was from Camargo in Cincinnati, and I'm a big Seth Rayner fan. You know, and and the man said, "Well, of course, members can carry their bag anytime." You know, like I'm an idiot, and and you know, but 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 you know, eight out of ten emails that went were like, "No, you have to have a caddy until noon, or you have to have a caddy until two or three p.m. or this or that or whatever." 
and and the places that just strip it down and keep it simple. Boy, that's where I'm most at home. There's a real theme there, I think, that uh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, Clates, you must have brought up five points to me after you read this. I think I got five texts from you after you read this piece, and uh, yeah. there's a lot to, well, lot to digest. Go for it. If the architecture of an 18-hole course isn't interesting at 6,200 yards, there is no chance it will be more interesting at 7,400 yards. So do you want to flesh that one out a bit, Randall? I mean, it seems obvious to us, but... In an age where the ball's going further and further, uh, there's an ever-increasing race to make courses longer, to, to cater for the 2% of people who hit the ball 320 yards in the air. Yeah, it's funny you say that. One of the first um, emails I got back was from Zach Blair, the, the professional, and he had screenshot the the preamble and circled that exact line and gone how true how true exclamation point exclamation point and here's a guy who just uh crushes it um but but you know he's on board um with the spirit um you know it it, you know obviously enough i mean so i I like to carry my bag and i don't want to be out there for more than uh three hours and you know i i probably can't walk seven thousand yards in in three hours so you you just start dialing it back to where um you know what's a good um distance to get a nice you know two and a half hour uh jaunt outside um get some good exercise it doesn't um take up your whole day um and you know that and yeah obviously that's going to come back to the need for the greens to be uh really interesting it, you know, if the greens aren't interesting, then there's no way that a course that's 6,000, 6,200 yards um, can be interesting. Um, and so that, that gets back, that puts the pressure back on the architect. And, and, you know, to be honest, there are a lot of architects who can't build interesting greens or can't build greens that, that um, tie back to the fairway and make a hole um, strategic. Um, you know, I... We all know that one of the greatest greens in the world is the third green on the West Course at Royal Melbourne, and yet I, I haven't seen that green replicated in any real form more than you know one or two or, or three times in my life. And you know, and, and and you know, that's a perfect example of how you make a 330, 340, 350 yard hole to confound anybody. Um, but you know, most architects are programmed to build a green that slopes from back to front. And as Max Baer said, is a catcher's mitt and just looks right at you. Um, and you know, they just, they, they totally have ignored the, the lessons from, uh, St. Andrews where, you know, at least a third of the green sloped to the rear. Yeah. But uh, I know that if we built that green in Melbourne now, it'd be vitriolic criticism of it because, because, you can't keep the ball on the green, they would say. It's too hard and, you know, you get a perfect shot and it lands on the green and it always runs over the back. So there's, there's so much of this list, a place like Presswick, you know, there's, there's the, 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 the Himalayas and the opposite Presswick. If you built those holes now, there'd be, there'd be almost universal criticism of, of those amongst the 98% of golfers who think that golf needs to be fair and predictable and well-conditioned and all the stuff you're railing against that that huge majority of golfers who play would 
would be would go crazy at the at the, at the 13th green at Royal Melbourne because Rand, uh, so, sorry, Rod, you know the the 13th green at, at the lakes that we built. Yes. Um, you know that's almost exactly the same green as the fourth of Woodlands, which is a hundred years old and everyone loves it. You, you build it now and it's unfair because if you miss the green, you can't get up and down. And so, so the so the third green at Royal Melbourne, I think, as, as great as that is. What if you build it now? It attract a deal of criticism from the people who aren't going to read this list because they're not going to know it exists. Yeah, and that just gets back to so many people, you know, just don't get the uh, the sport. And I and I really do feel sorry um, for um, modern architects. And and you, there's so few that get the opportunity to work with a Mike Kaiser, for instance, who gets it and who's happy to to push it. And to build a 14 abandoned trails is going to have people ripping out their hair in frustration. Uh, you know, I always come back to McKenzie's quote that he always worried about Cypress Point because nobody said anything bad about <laughs> yeah, it. It's one of the great yeah. quotes ever in the history of the game, yeah. isn't it? That it's uh, one of my favorites. Just to go back to that very quote, if the architecture of an 18-hole course isn't interesting at 6,200, there's no chance it'll be more interesting at 7,400 yards. Clates, this speaks directly, does it not? We talk a lot about distance and the ball and how far it goes, etc., it talks directly to the relationship between distance and how far the ball goes and the game of golf itself, does it not? What is that? Tease well, that I, out a little bit. What is the importance of distance? Why do pros continually want to hit it further? Let's forget about the end game. What are they going to do once they have hit, you know, started hit, averaging 400 and golf just becomes completely uninteresting? But just tease out a little bit that notion of what the distance of the holes and the distance the ball goes and that relationship between those two and why it's important there's some kind of balance. Well, the pros want to hit it further because to compete, they have to hit it further. And there's a never-ending arms race amongst the manufacturers. That, that, that's why we've gotten to what we've got to. And probably nowhere more born out than – I'm not answering your question probably very well, but nowhere more born out was – Around 6,200, 7,400 um, equation than Bell Reeve, probably. I mean, I haven't seen Bell Reeve, but that seemed like the classic early 60s artifice that celebrates boredom and softness and great length over interest. It, it ran uh, one of the problems with the end, and Clates is right, and certainly. The public want to buy distance, don't they? I feel like we don't talk about this enough. One of the reasons manufacturers push distance is because we want to buy it, we being the general golf public. How do we edu educate the golf public that, in fact, the most interesting things about golf aren't how far you hit your driver? Well, you know, I, I've got – so I'm 55 uh, years old, and, you know, and that, so I started um, Golf Club Atlas when I was in my um, 30s. And to Mike's point earlier, you know, I, I, what I hate and resent about magazines is how they glorify the professional tour when all of my friends have stopped watching it. Nobody watches the Golf Channel. Nobody watches um, these events because it's an unrelatable sport. When you have Dustin Johnson hitting a pitching wedge out of super thick rough 180 yards off a downslope to fly over a par five green in two, you know, it, nobody gets that. And so I don't want to write about that. And I'm not going to become golf digest where it's like, Hey, here's how you can hit the ball 10% further. It's just all, 
we're just all going the wrong um, direction with these conversations. And so I wanted to write a piece about, you know, a guy who hits it 240 yards and, you know, with a driver and, and then, you know, seven irons, 155 yards and, and just make it more kind of human. And, and that's the vast majority um, of us. And I just really don't care about the other part. And so, you know, I just don't talk about it. Mm. It's a distraction, though, isn't it, that we've kind of all fallen for this notion that, I don't know, a colleague of ours on another podcast, we do the I Seek podcast, Rand, he put it beautifully, I wrote a column about it. He played St Andrews for the first time, the old course, a few weeks ago. And he came up with this notion, because he was paired with three people he'd never met before, that there are two types of golfers, those who look down and those who look up. And those who look down seem to be in the majority. Those who look at the ball and the target and see golf just as about them and their score and how to perfect hitting a six iron and exact yardage so it stops there and gives them their best putt. And then there's those who look up who enjoy so much more, I think, who get so much more out of the game because they look around at everything else about the course and what are the questions it's asking and all those sorts of things. How do we get the majority to be the look-uppers <laughs> instead of the look-downers around well, it? It's a temptation for all of us, isn't it? Hopefully this piece, um, you know, um, conveys some of the uh, joys. I know one of the courses on on it um, is uh, Minchin Hampton Old, and I just played there in August, and my wife was with me, and she doesn't um, play golf. Um, and the last time she swung a club was three years ago. And this, this course is on common ground, and there are cattle, and there are people walking their dogs, and their road crossings, and da-da-da-da-da. But it is a absolutely gorgeous um, field, and we posted a profile on Golf Club Atlas. And, and after the third or fourth hole, my wife was so taken by the relaxed atmosphere and ambience of the place and passing dog walkers and passing cows that she started to play golf. And by the end of the round, I, I went back into the um, head professional and I said, listen, my wife just played 14 holes. I owe you another greens fee. And and he just got the biggest giggle out of that story. And he said, oh, a few shots here and there. No, no need to bother. Um, but, you know, it, it gets back to, you know, putting people in a in a simple, stress free, beautiful environment and guess what? They will cotton on to this sport and they will take it up. You know, I, one of the great tragedies of of golf is, you know, if there are 30,000 or so golf courses around the world, you know, 25,000 of them, you know, have to be borderline awful um, or mediocre um, at very, very um, best. And, and, and people who play there just don't have they, they there's no chance that they're going to become enthralled with the game like people who can play at royal melbourne or st andrews beach or minchin hampton old or royal north devon or name name your place and you know it's a great shame so it, it was nice to put together uh, you know a, a list like this that i think a lot of people would feel um inspired to take up the sport yeah, that's the great 
well, well, the second great quote, I think, here is, aside from the yardage one, there has been much hand-wringing of late about the decline of the game and what should be done to reverse this presumed decline. The fact is most causes are mediocre at best, bordering on awful, which is such, which is so true. I mean, it's just, you know, and there's probably a place for, when the first course I played was, it would probably, it was a nine-hole public course that would, it would kind of classify as, well, it certainly was, it was certainly mediocre, bordering on awful, but it was a place to play. But it's so true about, you know, these courses celebrate what's great about golf. And, you know, you, know, you would never ascribe the word awful to any of them, or, or, or mediocre. Well, and, and that gets back, you know, I highlight some of the cities where they have the best golf ethos. And in Melbourne, with its, you know, 10 or 12 uh, really fine sandbell courses, Amsterdam and Rotterdam had really good high-level um, courses. And guess what? What that breeds are people who love the sport and who give back to the sport, and they're not going anywhere. Um, you know, everybody made a big fuss about would Tiger Woods get people into the sport, and he certainly turned on a lot of TVs. But you know, I think a lot of the people who who perhaps he got into the sport, you know, have since um, given it up. And I think their introduction to the sport was probably riding in a a golf cart and you know drinking beer and you know playing bad um, courses. And there just wasn't a hook in that combination to make you want to go back more than five or, or 10 times. And then eventually you figure out you can go do that other stuff somewhere else. So, um, you know, but, but these, these classic places, you know, gosh, we all know how fortunate we are to love, um, the game and we just have to help others, you know, share in those experiences and, and they'll become hooked for life. I believe. Here's a question for both of you, but I'll start with you, Clates. You must have played with yep. thousands of people in programs over the years from all sorts of different backgrounds, from people who yep. you would have had extended conversations with who get it, to those who may be just taking up the game, to those who've played forever and have no interest in the game, who is the, the golfer that we've discussed before. Why do people at those 25,000 mediocre to awful courses around the world, why do they turn up every week? I think about my own home club here, and I think the majority of people who turn up every week, some of them twice a week, Wednesday and Saturday, and have no interest in the game the way we do. Why do they do it, Clates? And how do we help them to understand why they could enjoy it more than they perhaps do? Well, it's partly McKenzie's line about everyone having an affection for his own mud heap on which he plays. So they, they like the companionship. They can play well there. They The beer's cold. They, you know, I mean, people play golf... Like, in, in many ways, because they enjoy the people they play it with. So that, that's probably why they turn out. They, they get satisfaction from making a swing and hitting the ball out of the middle of the club, which is, the, which is another great attraction of golf. And they enjoy the after part of it, and it gets them away from their wife or their husband. And you know, There are a whole bunch of reasons why mm. people play golf, I think. Mm. What do but, you... but, but, but you're right, they... Yeah, you know, if they come from up where you are, I mean, how many great courses are there within an hour's drive where you live? Mm, yeah, Newcastle probably, and mm-hmm. you know, there's just. I mean, I'm lucky. I'm in Melbourne. I'm I'm a 20 minute drive from Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and Metro and Victoria, and down here at Sandridge Beach, you can go to Portsea and Sorrento, and 
the National and Flinders and you know, so people who live in Melbourne are incredibly lucky. As people who are who live in Holland and if you can get on Morfontaine, which is the, the, the great little nine-hole course that Morfontaine's on Rand's list. I mean, golf in Paris is fantastic. Hmm. But, yeah, yeah, I think if if people could play, if, if everyone in the world could play golf and play the nine-hole course at Morfontaine, no one would ever give up because it's such that's, a great little place to play golf. And that's why it's such a crime that they're going to an awful <laughs> golf course. Like oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I've come to think of France as probably the most underrated um, golf country. Um, they have, you know, at least 10 real quality um, golf courses, probably more like 15. But the golf IQ there is relatively um, low because people have grown up, you know, with, with a fair amount of mediocre, mediocre golf, you know, surrounding uh, that and it's just it's just sickening that the European uh, tour uses this as a money grab versus a way to um, you know put the sport on a pedestal. Yeah, I've got my computer page here stuck on Chanty, which is where I, I played the French amateur there the first time I played there in 1979. An amazing town with that incredible chateau and the race course and. 36 holes, everything the Ryder Cup needs to, you know, all the space, every, huge practice fairway. It's got everything the Ryder Cup needs to be great. And they're going to that tip down the road. It's just amazing. And you, you can't imagine how great the Ryder Cup would be at Chantilly. It's the perfect venue for it. And it, it was such a sad day when, after four or five years of playing the Open at Chantilly, we went to the Golf National. It was like, what is this about? And clearly, it was about one thing. It was about money. And it's, you know, the ultimate manifestation of that move from Chantilly to Golf National is, the, you know, the Ryder Cup in two or three weeks' time. It's, you know, it's everything that's, you know, people in France will, you know, it's why we made this money. We, you know, we've had this great event. And, and the golf course is a cross between a TPC course in, in the middle of nowhere, America. And, you know, it's a fake Dunes course. It's got those ridiculous holes to finish up. And, but, the players, going back to a point we were making before, the players universally think it's a great course. That's what's amazing to me is they all think it's great. Do they? Oh, my God. Do they? Do they, Clay? It's a wonder. Well, they can't say yeah. otherwise, can they? I mean, well, Ogilvy and Zach yeah. Blair, are, without doubt, they are the outliers amongst professionals who speak their minds. They yeah. do it diplomatically, and, you know, that's all to the good. But I wonder how much... I think, well, you did this test with Lucas Herbert the other week, didn't you? He hit some persimmon and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. He's a 22-year-old guy trying to make his way in the world of golf, which is a has very different financial structure to when you first started playing Clates. Yeah. And, and Lucas and lots of others probably play the game in some ways for some different reasons. And to them, I wonder how important this is. If you're a 10 or 11 or 12 or 14-year-old kid and your idol is Dustin Johnson or Brooks Kepka or even Tiger Woods, as it was for Jason Day and many others, then the joy of golf courses and all the things we're talking about don't come into it, do they? Um, that's really no, good. it's about how much, it's about how much prize money you make and yeah. play for. And it's about whether it suits your game or not. Yeah. So the better players are always going to like it, that golf course, because it's, it's perceived to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. So, so the better players, the better like players it like they think they've got an advantage over the rest because their ball striking skills come out. Mm. And you, you know, What's to argue with that if you're a professional golfer? You, you know, 
you want the best players to be rewarded. But yeah. that's not this list is not about you know if you go to Pedrania where, where Sevi Ballesteros grew up, which is on the list. You know, you you don't have to be a great ball striker to play that golf course effectively, but you've got to be a, a thinker and you've got to be a. You know, it's it's no wonder. And here's a tie-in that I hadn't thought of. Alistair McKenzie would have loved watching Seve Ballesteros play golf. Mm-hmm. And you go to Pedrania and you can see why he played golf the way he did, because it's a short golf course, but with a bunch of you know, a couple of long par threes and a couple of short par fives. So plenty of long iron play to learn the game on, but lots of wedge shots and cool stuff around the greens. And so there's a tie in between Colt who built the golf course. Mackenzie would have adored Seve and Seve learned to play golf the way he did on that golf course. But but if you put in Seve and time to learn golf course, golf at golf at Paris National, National. it'll be a completely different player. I'm just getting a bit of feedback there, Clates. I suspect you are too. You can hear. Yeah, we are. I don't know what's going on with that. Hopefully, it'll. We've got a little bit of it earlier. Now it seems to have stopped again. That wasn't a criticism, by the way, of professional. If you're a 15 year old kid and you want to play professional golf, well, in fact, if you were to try and look at golf the way we are here, Rand, and you wanted to be a professional, you'd probably end up tangled up in knots and you wouldn't be a very successful professional, would you? You can't consider these these uh, aspects of golf if the ultimate goal is to compete and by default win prize money doing so. So they come with two different approaches, don't they? And and this sort of golf doesn't necessarily reward that kind of mindset, uh, it feels to me. So, But that's not true of the rest of us, and so that's kind of the importance uh, of this list. Back to money, you know, professionals playing for money, you know, clearly don't want to face hazards that are going to uh, impugn their ability to earn money. And so it's, you know, it really is, um, I mean, you know, money can, it can be just the great enemy of this sport on, you know, X number of uh, levels. Yet it is a business, some- isn't it, Ren? And this is probably some of the, the things that we rail against are all related to the business of the game, aren't they? The longer courses, the more photogenic courses, the overwatering, the overgreen keeping, the overpresentation, everything that's not simple is the business of golf, isn't it? That's exactly right. And of course, you know, what green keepers are doing, I mean, they are presenting the course as they're being directed to mm-hmm. do. So I don't fault uh, them. Uh, you know, it's just what's weird to me is that in, in North America, if you ask anybody, what was your favorite trip you took this year? Nine times out of 10, the answer is to the UK. Mm-hmm. And, and then they come back and they sit on green committees and they're like, yeah, let's plant some more trees or let's do this or let's do that. And, you know, it's like they have a lobotomy on the flight home. And it, it, it just it doesn't make sense. You know, they have the guys who grab your uh, golf bag out of your uh, trunk of your car. And, and, you know, just more people touching you and around you when all you want is just to go have a simple little hit for three or five or six or eight holes after work. And it, 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 you just wonder, you know, why, again, the game's gotten so off kilter. And a lot of it has to do with people trying to, to make money. And a lot of people, you know, it's just, it's a shame. I'm interested in the notion that you put there, Rand, that people can go and have the light bulb moment at the old course and yet come back to their home club and seemingly forget everything they learned 
I mean, the revelation to me, I grew up in Sydney, and as Clates has pointed out, it's essentially, in many ways, a golfing wasteland. I mean, there's nothing like what the Sandbelt in Melbourne has got and the questions those courses ask and the endless hours of fascination you can have thinking about the questions those courses ask. But having been to the UK, it was like a light bulb. And when I came back, I sort of thought the courses that I played that were previously sort of the courses that you would aspire to play were like, wow, that doesn't have any of the things that I found really interesting about the game. But that doesn't happen for everyone around. Why do you think that people can say that's amazing and yet come back and continue not to get it? You know, I, the, the greatest crime in all of architecture is that the Australian Golf Club, at least when I was there in the 90s, they had black and white photographs of these holes through massive sand dunes. Mm-hmm. And then you look out of the modern clubhouse window at what exists now, and there's no light bulb moment. And not surprisingly, you know, I didn't become friends with any uh, <laughs> member there. And instead, I drove two hours every weekend to go up to Newcastle, oh, where yeah. the golf IQ is very high and mm-hmm. people appreciate the game. And we had great Stableford matches. But, I mean, what a disaster. Yeah. What an absolute disaster. We must mention yeah, – um, sorry, Clayton, you go. I, we must mention Peter Thompson at every possible turn, Clayton. What did Clay, what did Thompson say oh, yeah. about the new Australia? Well, the, the fascination with water hazards next to greens is akin to putting yeah. fins on a Cadillac. <laughs> it's yeah. a beautiful Peter footage. Thompson, because I catered it in the 75 Open at the Australian on the old course, which was a – if you'd given that golf course to Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw 20 years on from that, it would be unquestionably one of the best three or four courses in the country. They, they would have made it – it was good. It was really good, and, and they would have made it great. But after the 1977 Open, which was the first Open they played on the new Nicholas course, Peter Thompson wrote a headline article on the, on the back of the age, Packer money wasted. Of course, Kerry Packer was one who was the richest man in Australia that financed the rebuilding of the golf course, and it was Packer money wasted. And he just went on – and, and 800 words that absolutely slaughtered the golf course. <laughs> and he was he was the only person in Australia who could have done that. God, if I wrote that article or Jeff Ogilvy or a- anyone else wrote that article now, they'd be, oh, wow. But he just slaughtered it. Yep. And, and, it's, and, and Jack came back 30, 25 years later, and his guy apparently told the club that if I brought Jack here now, he'd make me rebuild the entire golf course before he put his name on it. And so they rebuild it again. It's just, look, it's just, and and there's a place for that golf in Sydney because it's big swinging dicks and it's, um, you know, it's it's a great club. And Bob Harrison's a member there, and you know, Bob loves golf as much as we all do. But and he he said, I'm, I'm a member there because there are so many great people who are members there. But I don't like the golf course at all. But there's there's a place for that golf, obviously, because it's a very highly sought after membership. It's just not our cup of tea. Mm. But wow, ran! I'll dig up that Thompson article if I can and send to it. It's just I, I, I would love to, uh, to 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 read that. I will tell you that somebody um, I can't remember either emailed or called and suggested I should do a, a, another list of like 
the, essentially the yeah. 50 opposite courses <laughs> of this 147. I can promise you the Australian would make it in the top 10. That's, that's a Seinfeld idea, isn't it, Rand? Didn't, they did an opposite episode, didn't they, where everything was the opposite? George did everything opposite to what he would normally do, and it turned out to be a great success. So perhaps you might want to, uh, might want to consider that. I guess at the end of all this, what we're trying to do, Rand, is kind of educate people, aren't we? Can you get this sort of stuff? Can you get it from reading? We've already, I suppose, we've already established that you can get it from playing and then completely lose it when you get back home. But you kind of need to experience it, don't you? I mean, my advice to anyone who reads this, and and there are a lot of people who think, oh, that's all a bunch of old nonsense and nothing to do with golf. Golf's about scoring and this sort of stuff. You've got to try it, don't you, to understand what joy golf can really be. Yeah, I mean, you know, one, you've got to want to be outdoors. And, you know, there a lot of it, it's scary. And I've got a 14-year-old. I'm over in my office, but my guess is that he's upstairs uh, playing Line of Duty on TV. And, you know, it, 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 it's nervous to me how, how many people um, don't enjoy being outside um, like – my generation um, does. So, you know, it, it starts with there. And then, you know, as you mentioned, Shackelford saying, you just, you want some authentic experience where you can go have some, you know, amble around and feel a connection uh, with nature. And the more things that come in between you and that, then the less authentic the experience is going to um, be. Mm. And the less fulfilling. The less fulfilling. I guess that we're kind of like ex-smokers, I suppose, aren't we, Clates? You know, you're spousing the joys of no longer smoking to people who haven't sort of stopped yet. It must be tiresome for people. Certainly that's the reaction you and I both get on Twitter quite often when we start talking about things that we don't think are good about the game. There's a real pushback and a resistance, isn't there, from people who've not sort of experienced and don't hold those views. They're very adamant and vehement about golf being about resort courses and great incredible presentation and all those sorts of things. There's a lot of people are into it. Yeah. It's um, Ran, um just a question on the list. How's Wolf Point doing? So those who don't know, I played there a couple of years ago and thought it was an amazing place. The, the old guy who owned it fell off a ladder tragically and died. So his wife was looking for ways to keep that golf course going and um, how's it doing now? Is, is, is it surviving and living and it is. Uh, I, I'm not. Sh- the last time I was there was about s- four months before he fell off uh, the ladder. And Don Mahaffey had that place uh, playing flawlessly. I remember on the third hole, my tee shot hit on flat ground and must have bounced, uh, you know, f- twenty feet in the air. And I was like, "Holy cow! This is real golf now." <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I don't have um, a current uh, update. They've, they're exploring several different uh, things, and boy, it'd be awful if if that was to to go away. So I was there not long after you. I think I was there about a month before that accident. But I, I played with Tommy Watson round, and the um, the coolest thing about that place was you could basically tee up on the green to go to the next hole. You know, you, you, because it was a private course in a sense, this guy owned the golf course. You could, um, and there were, I think, a thousand rounds there a year. 
uh, and he he and his mate played six hundred of them. But you could essentially tee up on the green you just finished and go to the next hole. And it was it, it oh. was a brilliant place to play golf. So much it, fun. It for sure wins the shortest green to tee walks of any course here. So that's for sure of one hundred and forty seven. Yeah, I, I listened. Interestingly enough, Clades, I listened to Derek Duncan's Feed the Ball podcast. He did an episode with Mike Nuzzo, who was the designer there yeah. at Wolf Point. It's an extraordinary story, uh, which he told sort of in full. So if you, you know, and my recollection is that he said at the time this would have been six weeks, maybe maybe two months ago, that I think it, they were looking for a buyer. Um, they're trying to trying to sort of sell the course to to keep it as a as a going concern. I think that's what he said. Don't quote me on that. But if you're yeah, interested, it, in Wolf it Point, would be a it would be horrible to lose it because it was such a cool place. Well, I, you know, I, I, Mike, I, I don't know if you have played Royal Worlington, but that I, 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 I really relate Wolf Point to, to Royal Worlington and that is not over exciting land, but because man was smart about what he set about doing, it becomes really engaging uh, golf. And that's why I get so upset of the 25,000 awful courses. Cause it, it's like nobody gave it any care or thought what they were doing. Um, and you know, that, that is, that's hundreds of thousands of acres that don't present the sport in a positive manner. And, and it just, it's, it's just wildly irritating to me. Isn't that a yeah. lack of knowledge as much as anything though, Rand? So somebody within a group who's played and loves golf and whatever, you know, to, to get a golf course off the ground is an, it's an incredible feat really, isn't it? I mean, the amount of land that you need and the cost of that, and then to put it all together, it feels to me like most of the courses that you would describe as mediocre or awful, really the only the only mistake that's been made is that not having anybody with the knowledge either through ignorance, stubbornness, or a lack of funds, uh, not having anybody with knowledge to to lay out the course. And Bob Harrison, you mentioned him earlier, Clates, had what I thought was one of the most fascinating ideas uh, I've ever heard. There's a there's a game called Snag. I think Jack Nicholas, but have you seen this? Um, it's a kid's game, Ran, where the, the kids have got oversized balls and oversized clubs. Uh, and the kids design the course themselves. So it can be played indoors or outdoors, but the kids design the course themselves. And, you know, they are the ones who oh, set up that. Awesome. Well, you should have seen Bob Harrison's eyes light up when I ne- mentioned this to him. He thought that was an amazing idea, just to let, let kids design a golf course and see what they come up with. Because as adults, we've lost most of what kids would find fun wouldn't we? I mean, you, if you gave a bunch of adults that and said you design your own course, and you gave a bunch of kids that and said you'd get two very different results, wouldn't you, Rand? That that's a fascinating. I, I, I've never heard of that, but I I would agree. You know, courses at some point became too formulaic, and they just took the joy out of life. And and again, it's supposed to be a game, so you might as well make it fun. Um. And, and, and that's what so many of the, the, these lists just seem to miss, that it's, you know, they're, they're all perfectly fine, hard, 18-hole courses, everything's in the right place, blah, 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 but they're also very sterile, and they don't excite the imagination at all, and they're just not fun. Clates, if somebody built Pebble Beach today, would we get a 100-yard seventh hole? Or would automatically anybody looking at that site be looking 50, 60, or even 100 yards further back to create some kind of 200-yard behemoth that would look amazing on television when the pros went there? Or would they just go from the sixth fairway to the eighth tee? 
Yeah. And just leave it out because they couldn't fit it in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. pro- that's but, probably what all those mediocre to awful. That's kind of the vision that they lack, don't you think? There's no deliberate. Nobody deliberately tries to build a bad golf course. They just don't have the knowledge of what makes golf interesting and and fun. I guess that's the yeah. point. I suppose I'm trying to make clumsily. Yeah. Well, Mind you, I've got Rand's um, Pebble Beach. Uh, Pebble Beach owns the worst. That sorry, there are two thousand six hundred and ten holes on this list, and Pebble Beach owns the worst, the twelfth, and the most overrated, the seventeenth. <laughs> And the worst set of bunkers, those right of the 13th fairway. So um, should we just have a quick discussion on Pebble Beach, Rand, and why you think the 12th of Pebble Beach is the worst hole of all 2,610 of them? Well, I mean, you you literally can't hit the green as best I can um, yeah. discern. And it just it's it's morphed over time into just something that it, it, it shouldn't be. And if ever... If ever there was the perfect situation, right to left slope, et cetera, for some kind of a modified Redan hole, it's right there. And how they don't do anything to fix that um, is is just beyond me. I mean, it just every year when you see it on TV, you know, it, it's always about the recovery shot. I mean, it's just. Uh, I mean, it's a hole that just doesn't make sense. And for a place like that, with all the smart people uh, there, you you would think they would have addressed it. They did address the 17th green a couple of years ago, and they they widened it and reclaimed it um, to some effect. I still don't think it's anything um, special, but um, just kind of a bizarre um, place. You know, there's so much... uh, uh, great black and white um, photographs. Oh. Oh, oh we've lost. Oh, have we lost Rand? We've lost Rand. I know oh, we haven't. Yeah. He's still there, yeah. but we're just not hearing him at the moment. So, Rand, if you can hear us, stop talking for a moment, and hopefully you'll. Uh... Oh, I was really enjoying that, Clates. <laughs> um, Rand, are you there? I might have to hang up on Rand and uh, and call him back. How do I do that? Hello. Now he's gone. So now I can bring him back into hey. the conversation. Uh, just on that, I know that Zach Player's been um, been one close. He quite often posts a photo of the the ninth at Pebble Beach with the extended fairway to the right, which seems yeah, to make an awful lot of sense. Right. If you have an area, it just would make so much more sense. Rand, are you back Sorry with us? That's okay. Not your fault. I don't know what happened there. Skype let us down, I suspect. Um yeah, so you were, you were, we got all the, the info about the 12th and then the 17th, but you didn't think is what it could have been. I'm not sure what you said after that. That's when we lost you. <laughs> well, Black then I was just photo. looking at my comment. I mean, the, the bunkers down the right of the 13th hole, you know, given the fierce right-to-left tilt, you're already dead if you hit it to the right. And frankly, if you hit it in rough and you have a fly lie, you're especially dead. So... Those bunkers were added for what the two thousand and one open. I, I, I just why? I mean, they just stick out like a sore thumb. Is is uh, you know, there's just no strategic value in in there having been added. So, you know, again, Pebble Beach is just a a mixed uh, mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah, bag of architecture. You're saying about area. You were saying looking at old photos of Pebble Beach. What what was that point you were about to make there, Ren? 
Well, it used to have these faux dunes and stuff, and and it looked uh, it much more like uh, Cypress Point than I think most people understand. And I don't know if the issue there is one of maintenance given the weather conditions and so forth. So, so maybe, um, you know, maybe that's the, um, maybe that is the, the case that it'd just be too hard to, to keep, uh, the Sandy, um, faux dunes that were created there back in the twenties to keep those, um, you know, presentable. Um, but, you know, aesthetically, it's a bit of a loss for sure. The, the problem, of course, at Pebble that you've got, Rand, is if you want to do anything, the cost of closing all or part of the course, even for a few hours, is unbelievable with the amount they charge to play there. To lose a day's play there is in the multiple thousands of dollars. So the, there's a real incentive not to uh, not to close any part of the course and and uh, and do anything in that sense. I want to stir up, try and stir up a bit of controversy here, Clates. I, don't, I haven't asked you this, so I don't know whether you're going to uh, have anything for me are there any courses on Rand's list and you would have probably seen the bulk of them that you wouldn't have had on there or you think don't fit the bill can we start uh, an argument with Rand that's what I'm wanting can we start an argument with Rand um, hard to do he's very nice but uh, let's have a go uh, well I would I'd have had more Fontaine on there the, 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 the main course and not just the little course but are there any courses on here that I wouldn't no no I I'm very sadly. I can't, <laughs> what a letdown! I, 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 I think I've played about sixty of them. I'm, you know, Woking, Japan. I'm in two of my foot: Brora, St Andrews Beach, Kings Course at Glen Eagles, Paparam, Gullen Number One. I mean, there are so many fun, fun uh, El Salair, So many fun courses that you know I've, I've, I've had so much joy playing over the years that, that are all here. So it's um, and there's a whole bunch that I haven't seen that. I should go and see, but... Um, what about the order, Clates? Well, there must be okay. something about the order. Surely he's got somewhere wrong in there that should be higher or lower on the list. Come on, Clates, no. there's got to be something. He's right? got Alderborough on there, which um, Peter Thompson's old caddies took me to Alderborough a few years ago and said, you have to come and see this course. And it was the only place I ever got a speeding ticket in England. Oh, really? <laughs> so, um, what a memorable terrific, golf course. Terrific course that no one's ever heard of. I've never heard of it. There's a lot on here I've not heard of. Um, actually. Mike, I, I'll share this with you on more Fontaine. I, I'd be curious if you'd heard this. I was told in the last couple of months that during uh, World War II, they lost the greens on the main course, and they didn't on the nine-hole course that I have on the list. And that's why those greens are so much more fun and cool and wonderful because they're original Simpson greens. And what the guy was basically implying is that he thought that the original greens on the big course at Morfontaine would have been more exuberant and more in keeping with the nine-holer um, if it hadn't been for World War II. I don't know if that's um, true or not, but it's the first plausible explanation I've heard. I made the mistake of playing the nine-holer, which is just pure fun, before the main course and and it just didn't seem like the main course, even though everything was perfect, um, that, that, that the main course reached that same level of uh, just joy that the uh, nine-holer did. Yeah, because we'd always – we used to go over after we played the played at Chantilly in the French Open, we'd always go over there in the afternoon, like, well, not, two, two or three or four times a week, and 
they were, that is by the cause. Again, another place with a reputation for closed gates who are incredibly kind to us. And I never played the little course until I went there about four years ago. I was like, why didn't we come and play this every day? It was it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that look, there's a, that's an and interesting it question. How great nine hole golf can be. I mean, you know, the, 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 there's, there's so much golf in Sydney, Rod, where mm-hmm. you've played those courses where they've tried to jam eighteen holes into a bit of land that's got enough room for twelve or thirteen or fourteen great holes, but they've got a bad eighteen hole course. Yep. Because they just jam too many holes onto it, where it, you know it just doesn't fit. Yep, and that's that formulaic thing that I think you were talking about earlier. It's got to have four par fives. It's got to have four par threes. Two per nine. It's got to come back to the clubhouse. It's got to be a par seventy two. All of this nonsense that that almost handcuffs you into building bad golf courses, doesn't it? When when golf really at is at its best, when somebody walks out onto a piece of land and says, "Right, let's build as many co- holes here as fit in the best possible way." You know, and if the ninth and, and hole right is two Ks out there, well, that's where the ninth hole is. Who cares? I, I, Rod, I'll give you two examples of that. One is close to you at New South Wales. You know, there's so much to love about New South Wales, but it is idiotic to have the ninth and uh, tenth and eighteenth holes in that um, tight corridor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I think returning the nines there was a um, uh, mistake. And I was just, when I was in England playing Minchin Hampton, we went down and played Rye, which has five par threes and one par five. And the par five's the first hole and it's a short one. Um, and it's a par, so that makes it a par 68. And I don't know if it's 6,200, 6,300, something like that. Uh, and it is just brutal because there's so many, you know, 410 to 440 yard uh, par fours. Um, so it, you, you hit tons of hybrids, tons of long irons, um, but it's you can walk it in two and a half hours, and it's and it's why England um, nips Australia is my favorite um, country for golf because they they really aren't as confined about the makeup of the scorecard with some of those older uh, courses as you find everywhere else. Is it is that an age thing? Do you think, Clay? It's just the age of the the times that were built. When did when did we get this formula? Do you kind of recall it happening slowly, Clayton? Well, it had to be championship yeah, golf. Well, I think England built so many courses in the Hickory Shafted era. Mm-hmm. So many really good courses. So that a Swimley Forest at 6,000, two or 300 yards was quite a long course. Mm. So, so almost all of our best golf was built. Well, it wasn't built post steel because. You know, it, it was all done in, in the twenties, or most of it in the twenties. But was it post par? The notion of par? Lots of the courses uh, in England well, would have been built before par was even considered as a well a measure. Kingston Heath was a bogey eighty-two, whatever that meant. But you know, I think our best courses were built as championship courses. They were built to hold our, our biggest tournaments. They were built to be the equivalent of Muirfield and mm-hmm. um, Dale and Sandridge and Troon and. You know, we didn't have courses that were built to be the equivalent of Swimley Forest and, um, you know, a 6,000-yard great fun little course that wasn't supposed to hold championship golf. All our best golf courses in Australia were all built as courses that were capable of holding our biggest events. Yeah. So, so by definition, they were longer and more difficult. You know, so we never had the notion of the Hillsville, which was 5,000, you know, well, 5,500 yards and absolutely not built for 
championship golf. And how's that been received, Clay? What sort of feedback do you get about that? Does everybody get it, or do some people walk away and say it's not a proper golf um, course, not long enough? Most people think it's most people think it's ridiculous. They think the greens are crazy. They think it's ridiculous. It's not real at all. Um, but we played a senior pro am there in March, and I was surprised that a few guys actually really enjoyed it. I thought most of them would just think it was crazy. But you know, there are greens there like the. The eighth green at Hillsville is a lot like the fourth green at, on the little course at Morfontaine. You know, it's a green that if you build it now, 90% of people who play it will think it's completely ridiculous, like the 13th green at Bone Boogle. Yet, they're the people who haven't seen the picture of that amazing green at Sitwell Park, which they dug up, which was, that was a spirit of golf. But, but it, it got beaten out of golfers because it goes back to the old notion of what's fair and, what, you know, Anything that's going to disrupt my succession of threes, fours, and fives is no good. When, when did do you? For sure. When did it more, happen, Rand? When, when did it happen? When did we go from sporty to formula? Uh, in part, uh, with the creation of television. And and you know, for instance, Augusta had, had the classic um, layout, always alternating between a four, a five, and a three, etc. And um, and then. You know, Robert Trent Jones came and made um, golf into a business, into a profession. And I, I don't fault him for that. But in that process of creating, you know, um, scores of golf courses, um, some of the joy and variability of each of the sites was snuffed out because the architect was hired to build a Robert Trent Jones golf course. And that had certain connotations that then um, he kept perpetuating. And the same would later happen with Tom Fazio, et cetera. And again, they're giving their clients um, what they uh, wanted, um, which was some preconceived idea versus, let's just go find the best holes that are here and and see what we end up with. It's just two wildly different approaches. Mm. Does he get a bad rap, RTJ? Derek on Feed the Ball, he, he often seems to hint at the fact that he feels like RTJ gets a worse rap than he deserves, that some of his work was much better than he's given credit for, that he just gets lumped into this category of, you know, the guy that entered us into the dark ages. What do you, I don't know enough about him, Rand. Do you? Is there, is there more to RTJ than what we often well, give him credit yeah. for? I can tell you that um, if Peachtree didn't, you know, they have a caddy policy, Peachtree would have absolutely been on this list without there. It's a wonderful uh, golf course. And so RTJ, um, as you know, partnered early on with Stanley Thompson and got to witness a lot of Stanley Thompson's best work. Uh, and he spent a lot of time out at BAMP, for instance. Um, and so his early courses, which were the Dunes and Myrtle Beach and Peachtree, were wonderful golf courses. And then the kiss of death happened to him in the 50s at uh, Oakland Hills with Ben Hogan, where, you know, Ben Hogan uttered the famous, you know, kill the monster thing. And um, it, 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 and then he, he started to um, narrow his design in. For instance, you would be surprised probably to learn that he built a punch bowl green at Peachtree. Well, he never built another punch bowl green. He might have done it at Bally Bunyan New at one point, but um, he never built another punch bowl uh, green 
uh, after that. Um, but I will tell you, he, he absolutely could route a uh, golf course, and that didn't always follow in his family, to be honest. Um, so his courses, like uh, the Chanticleer course at Greenville Country Club in North in uh, South Carolina, uh, really flows across the um, land uh, well, and and I would give some of that to, some of that credit to Stanley Thompson. Okay, yeah, he's a. Just feels like there might be a lot more to that that we don't we don't explore when we should, and I've I've, I've certainly got that feeling from Derek. So thank you for that, Derek, and we might. Uh, we might even do an episode about that. Clates, what does all of this mean? Who do we show this list to? Who needs to see it? Who needs to read it? Who needs to start to understand it? Who, who are the people at the club you should be giving it to? Well, give it to everybody. Hmm. Yeah, it's a list everyone should read because it will, amongst the smaller group, it'll reaffirm their views on the game and amongst the, the others, it'll... it'll Get them questioning what they think about golf, because and and golf's had too many, to me, you know, these top hundred lists that the, that the magazines do out. Everyone knows what the order pretty much is going to be. Everyone knows the eighty of the hundred courses on there are always going to be there, and like they argue about the bottom twenty. Yet, if you gave, you know, Tom Doak and Bill Core and Jeff Ogilvie and Zach Blair, a, a, you know, a bunch of guys of like minds. Go and give us a list of your 147 favourite courses in the world. There would be a wildly different group of courses, not group of courses, but there'd be lots and lots of courses on that list. That, um, which we'll get to Rand's point about which ones will be at, but, but they would all have the same spirit. Mm. You know, the courses would all capture that same spirit, great spirit of golf that yeah. everyone loves and gets and appreciates and you know and, and, and there are lots of courses on this list that should be in the world top 100 too i mean there are a whole bunch of courses here that are on most world top 100 lists it's just that it's such a different list and it makes people think about what's great and and the comments are terrific the one about um the jockey club most flat courses lack interest at the greens most courses aren't designed by alistair mckenzie i mean it's such a simple you know one such simple sentence but so obvious, and why Mackenzie was such a great architect that he, he could make the jockey club, and he could make Royal Melbourne on a great piece of land, but build two great, two fascinating places to play golf. Yeah, on two. Because he understood that greens were such an important part of it. Yet now there's so much criticism about severe greens because, you know, it goes back to this point we've been harping on is that people want fairness and predictability. Yeah, if you go and build greens like the, you know, the greens at Morfontaine on the little course. People just think they're a joke. That, that's as much setup as any. They just cut greens too fast. The modern expectation for fast greens eliminates the most interesting greens. And that's a, such an easy fix with a bit of education. The 13th of Barnboogle would be unplayable running at 12 on the stint meter. But at 9 or 10, it's fantastic and it's great fun. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 Man, do you have an opinion on green speeds? You, you, I'm assuming you think that we're tending to strive for the craziness of 13 or 14 too much well i you know I, I one of the reasons it's 100 and well the reason it's 147 is to mimic the 147 open championships yeah. and the you know you, you they've had some severe weather um the last several uh opens but they don't lose 
control of their greens because they're at, at nine or ten. Um, and they know how to set up um, the golf course. And, 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 you know, that was my experience when I was at Barn Bugle Dunes. They know how to set up the golf course. And, you know, a crazy green like 13, the key thing is that it's surrounded by short grass. And so you can use the short grass on the high side of the green to access a bunch of the harder uh, hole locations. You just have to be um, creative. creative. So the opportunity mm. is there. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Can you imagine that green if it was just an, an island in the middle of a sea of fescue, Ran? It would be a horrible golf hole, no. wouldn't it? You're absolutely right. <laughs> it would be a... It, it, yeah. And, and, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I, I would love to know, and I've never asked a greenkeeper this, if the greens were to be maintained at a nine in this country versus a 12 or 12 and a half, how much money um, could they save? save yeah. And I, I don't know what that, that answer is, but I do know as a member, you know, I would rather pay, I'd much rather be, uh, you know, paying the Newcastle um, membership than I would the uh, Riviera membership. I can tell you that. I, yeah. uh, I dread what's about to happen. We're, we're going to have our club championships at my home club soon, Clates, and I know that the greens will be too fast and too firm. They'll be borderline unplayable, and that will bring yeah. enormous joy to the people setting up the course. They will think that is just fantastic. Uh, that you know, there's a there's a green there in particular. You can bounce at thirty yards short, and it's impossible for the ball to stop on the green. It's, it's just madness, um, and it takes it takes a lot of the fun out of it. Uh, I reckon, in that sense, um, you, you've you've hit on something, Rand. You mentioned at the start lists. Rupert Murdoch's made billions out of realizing that people love a list, and they love a list because they love to argue about it. But I agree with Clates. I think the preamble is what I'm going to give to a bunch of people at my club to read. Because uh, it's the most important part. So, the, the the way lists work, and I think we've discussed this before, Clades. If you if you were really to do those hundred lists, top hundred lists you see in the magazine, you'd do them in groups of ten, wouldn't you? You wouldn't have one, yeah. two, three, and four. Yeah. You go, okay, here's the top ten or fifteen or twenty. These are the twenty courses that are vying for for that. Here's the next twenty, and here's the next thirty, and here's the net. That's the way to do those, so that they make some sense. But there's not as much argument about that. We must let you go. I think, Rand, you're a, you've got a golf appointment with Chris Buey, so. Um, well, I will. I will tell you, Rod. You did hit on. I got a nice email from somebody. Who said the only uninteresting thing in the presentation was the left-hand column, which had the one, two, three, four, five, and and he thought I could have done without that and just had the courses a big um, without the numbers. Yeah. But um, do you know what you, you could know. probably do, Rand? In this modern age, you'd have to talk to somebody technically. You could probably have this list so that every time you click on this page, it comes up in a different order. <laughs> hey, that'd be worth thinking about, wouldn't it? So somebody gets clicks on it, they get Royal Melbourne at number one, and somebody else clicks on it, they get the Jockey Club at number one. And when they go back the next time, they get Barnboogle Dunes at number one. So uh, that would be interesting and a bit of fun. My ex-wife would have yeah. <laughs> now, have you got time for Clates to quickly offer us five or six courses that he would add to the list before you go, Rand? I would absolutely love to hear that. All right. Come on, Clates. Uh, in Australia, I would have uh, Portsy on there. I would have Heelsville on there. I'd have Port Ferry on there. Um, they're the three kind of – I mean, Newcastle's on there, obviously. Uh, I would be interested for you to see Royal Queensland round because it's a very much like – very similar to Wolf Point. Same sort of golf course, flat. Uh, I think we did some good greens there. Uh, it looks – it, 
In fact, I spoke to Mike Nazo. I said, I can't believe you built that golf course and never saw Royal Queensland because, it's, because they look and feel almost exactly the same. So um, that would be an interesting one. Um, yeah, I'm surprised you haven't said Barwin Heads, and I don't know if the stars kind of fallen from that course, but that was a really fine course. I, I don't know if all the new courses that have been built in Tasmania since then, um, but you know that that had the nice relaxed vibe yeah. to it. When I was playing there in the mid nineties. Yeah, Barwin Heads. So why didn't you put Barwin Heads on here? Because because that wasn't. <laughs> oh, finally, some controversy. Why didn't you put Barwin Heads on there, Rand? What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, to be, I thought it kind of petered out in the last four or five holes. What's that famous part three? Is that 13? 13, yeah, yeah, it does after that. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good golf out there, guys, to be honest. So um, I, I would have had Lost Farms added in there before um, I would have taken the short one. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you would like, you know, you would like Port Ferry because it's, there's a little house as the clubhouse. It's six hundred and fifty dollars a year to be a member. Green fees are thirty five bucks. Um, it's on the sea. It's it's you know it's mix of fairway grasses. It, it, it's got a bunch of great holes. It's it's so much fun to play. So, Mike, when did you start working there? I saw it in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, we started there two thousand and in the early two thousands. So so all yeah, the it- yeah, so all the trees are gone, and you know it's a, a lot better than. It, I mean, it was always good, but you know I think it's a lot better now. That's what everybody tells me. And I just haven't seen it since. So uh, yeah. we'll do that next time. Yeah. So when are you next down here? Well, my daughter goes to college in Christchurch at the University of Canterbury. So I, uh, I'm, I'm feeling the need to come see her based on this conversation. <laughs> Well you, well, you better get down here. Cause it's, um, and you've got Tara Eaty now too, haven't you, in New Zealand that you could visit as well, which wouldn't have been there last time you were there. I'm not, have you been there to Tara Eaty, Clates? Yes, and that ha- I have. Oh, I was there for go. the uh, Renaissance Cup, and they have a caddy policy in place. <laughs> so and a caddy policy list. in New Zealand is a deal killer. <laughs> it's off the list. Yeah. Well, I'm truly. I've not seen it yet, so I'd be uh, I'd be keen to go and have a look. Well, Rand, we will welcome you with open arms when you come. In fact, I'll tell you what we'll do. You and I will meet in Sydney and fly immediately to Melbourne, so Clades can show us some really good golf down there. That'd be uh, that'd be the way. <laughs> we got to go play Newcastle first. Sure. Yeah. Well, why don't you fly to Sydney? I'll meet you at Newcastle, and from there we'll head down to Melbourne. There you go. There's an airport at Newcastle now, so we can fly direct from there down to Melbourne, and Clades can take us around and show us some terrific golf. Well, Rand, you should say you should try and tie it into the. President's Cup next year. You can come and watch Tiger Woods play at Royal Melbourne, and then we'll go and play some golf. I, I was there when he uh, played Greg Norman. Yeah, ninety-eight. That was amazing, wasn't it? I was there for that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was spectacular. Yeah, good, good match too. It was, uh, it was enthralling oh, golf. All eighteen holes of it. Yeah, you really felt the shifting in generations there, didn't you? You know the. Norman yeah. on home turf and all that sort of stuff. That was uh, that was something to behold. Ram, we must let you go. Enjoy your uh, four club wind golf this afternoon. I hope it doesn't get any uh, any stronger than that. I think you're mad for going out there, but I hope you enjoy it anyway. 
Guys, thanks for your time and thanks for the kind words. No, not at all. Thanks, Ryan. Say hello to Chris Take Forrest. Care. Yes, and uh, thank you. And Clates, thank you to you too, of course, as always. Been terrific to have you on board thanks, and uh, always it. good to hear from you. Yep, me too. Hope you, the listener, enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. We're doing a state of the game a bit more regularly now. I hope you've noticed and we hope to continue doing that. We'll be back to do it all again on episode 83 soon here at State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.